Life Audio. Christian Parent Crazy World with Katherine Seegers is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational faith-affirming podcasts, visit lifeaudio.com. Welcome to Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. I am your host, Katherine Seegers, and in today's episode, we will tackle this very challenging question, how can a good God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? (sighs) Yeah, (laughs) this may be the most challenging question I've covered yet on CPCW. It's certainly a question that keeps me up at night, and I'm not alone. According to recent Barner research, reconciling a good God with an evil world is the number one barrier to the Christian faith for the next generation. Mm. As parents, if there is an obstacle to our kids' faith, we need to be prepared with some answers. My special guest today will help us do just that. That's the plan for this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World. So let's get started. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. Grab your copy of the Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hey, mamas and papas, would you consider giving Christian Parent Crazy World a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify? That would really help get the word out about this show. And feel free to drop me a line on Instagram at at Katherine Seegers or on Facebook at Katherine Seegers Speaker if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes. I would love to hear those. You can always email me at Katherine at KatherineSeegers.com as well. I I just love hearing from my listeners. So, my very special guest today for this episode is one of the greatest apologetic minds in the world today. (laughs) I'll be honest, I was a bit dumbfounded when he agreed to come on the show and more than a bit nervous because he is so well known. He has been interviewed thousands, literally thousands of times. He is the author of 17 books, including my massive Christian apologetics textbook, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, which was a primary text in my master's program at Colorado Christian University. Yeah, (laughs) you could use that book as a doorweight or a weapon. I'm not recommending that, by the way. Uh, You know, that's far better uses. I'm just saying you could because it is that heavy. He is currently a professor of philosophy and the head of the apologetics and ethics program at Denver Seminary. I am speaking of none other than Dr. Douglas Groteis. This man is adorned with so many accolades and he has a lot of letters after his name. He he truly has a brilliant mind that he has employed for God's glory and the good of the church for many decades. 
But what will strike you in this conversation is not only how brilliantly Dr. Groteis ponders and contemplates the great perplexities of life through the lens of our faith, but also how he has employed that faith in the midst of great personal heartache, which is precisely what we are talking about today. How can a good God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Dr. Groteis has some masterful theological thoughts on that, but he also shares his own deeply personal experience with suffering and the loss of his late wife, Rebecca. His journey is powerful and poignant, and ultimately, Dr. Groteis comes to the very question that suffering brings every believer to at some point in life. I, I, I don't want to give it away just yet. little hint for you, though. It is the same question the Apostle Peter asked of Jesus. Be listening for that. And with that, let's jump right in. Welcome to the program, Dr. Groteis. It's such an honor to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It took us a little while to get our schedules worked out, but we prevailed. Yes, yeah. I'm glad you're feeling better. You know, I want to give you center stage in this episode because you are the maestro. You are the one that can really help us to understand this topic. But first, I want to I want to set the stage and tell our listeners why I chose this topic and why I chose you to address it. This show started uh, about a little over two years ago with the youth exodus as a central focus. The fact that a majority of Christian kids are leaving the faith after they leave the nest was something that was just burning in my heart. And I wanted to create a podcast that would help really busy parents understand the faith better and build their children's faith better and defend the faith better. That was just one of my primary concerns as a parent. So I know that other parents felt that way as well. And well, a few months ago, I was doing some research for a series we did on Gen Z, and I was interviewing Dr. Jonathan Morrow. He's with Impact 360, and he works very closely with David Kenneman of Barna Research. And in that research I was doing for the show, I ran across something that I, I hadn't known. It kind of, it wasn't shocking to me. It wasn't surprising, but I didn't realize what a big issue this was. And that was the number one barrier that Gen Z has to the Christian faith. The statistic I saw said that 29% of Gen Z members said the biggest barrier to the Christian faith is that they have a hard time believing a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. And about that time, I had contacted you and you so graciously agreed to come on the show. And I was like, what did I ask you about? Because you are eminently qualified to talk about any topic in the field of apologetics or theology or philosophy. And I, I Honestly, <laughs> I felt like I got one wish from a genie. I could ask you anything. What am I going to spend my wish on? But the more I thought about the biggest barrier this next generation has to the Christian faith, I knew that that was what I should spend my one wish or my one question on because you're the perfect person to answer that. But one more thing I do have to acknowledge, I've got your wonderful, I've got the first edition of your Christian apologetics book here, and you begin to address this topic. On page 614 <laughs> of a 752-page book. So you have built, at this point, a thoroughly, impeccably researched and argued, powerful and overwhelming case, I believe, for the God of the Bible and the Christian faith before you tackle the topic of reconciling an evil world with a very good God. So I have to acknowledge that we are skipping to the end of your comprehensive argument for defending the Christian faith. You can't possibly condense uh, 613 pages into a 30-second soundbite for us. But so how how do we go about explaining, first of all, uh, understanding ourselves, and then explaining to this next generation how a good God could have created a world with so much evil and suffering in it? Well, I did put that chapter towards the end for that very reason, mm -hmm. because we have lots of positive, constructive evidence that there is a creator and designer. We have that from science and philosophy and so on. I've got over 200 pages arguing for the objective existence of a creator, designer, lawgiver of the world. And that evidence doesn't just go away when this problem emerges. Mm -hmm. Right. And then also, let me just state the problem. The idea is that Christianity claims that there is a God who is both all good and all powerful Mm -hmm. And also, there is objective evil of various mm -hmm. kinds, what we call natural evil, like 
tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, and what is called moral evil, human cruelty, injustice, rape, genocide, all these horrible things. So one of the tests of a worldview, any worldview, is whether its essential claims or truth claims cohere with one another. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if God is all-powerful, he could have not allowed any evil at all, or at least not as much as there is. And if he's all good, he would want to not have any evil, or at least not as much as we see. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if you have these propositions, God is all good, God is all powerful, and there is a lot of evil, that this is an inconsistent triad of statements. Mm -hmm. Now, before I address that, we need to point out that Every worldview has a problem of evil. It's not just Christianity. Mm -hmm. So right. the atheist says there is evil and therefore there's no God, but the atheist has the problem of the good, basically. So mm -hmm. if the universe is just here, it's not created, it's not designed, there's no moral lawgiver, all there is is the cosmos. You know, as Carl Sagan said all those years ago, the cosmos is all that ever that is, was, or ever will be, well, then it's hard to even have an account of what objective moral good would be, because all you have is matter arranged according to impersonal natural laws without any purpose, meaning, or destiny. Mm -hmm. So the atheist really has the problem of how do you even ground something as good or virtuous? Mm -hmm. And then you another possibility is what's called pantheism, which is the view that everything is divine. There's no distinction between God and the creation. But this God or this deity is not a personal moral being. It's just an impersonal something, an it, basically. And pantheists are usually also what are called monists or non-dualists. So they say that everything is God and everything is one. Well, if everything is one, then you can't even find a distinction between good and evil, between virtue and vice. And right. pantheist mystics will tell you that if you go into a higher state of consciousness, that whole division and distinction between good and evil just fades away like a bad dream. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. Grab your copy of the Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Don't they usually say something along the lines that it's either enlightened or unenlightened behavior, not necessarily good or evil behavior? Well, they might. You see, it's very hard yeah. to practically live out a worldview that's amoral mm -hmm. because you hear of a rape or you hear of a uh, terrible killing in a war and you're, uh, you're instinctive. Your impulse is to condemn it. Mm -hmm. Now, we can explain that as Christians. We have a conscience yes. God gave us, but see... On this view, this pantheistic, non-dualistic view, that's the world of division, the world of duality. They call it the world of maya or illusion. And the person that is truly enlightened will 
transcend that and leave all that behind. Mm -hmm. Well, that I think is a terrible strike against that worldview, because if you can't identify evil as evil, then your worldview doesn't account for something all too real in our world. So the atheist often uses evil as an argument against God, but they can't even ground the idea of an objective moral good. Mm. And you need the idea of objective moral good to understand evil, because evil is the opposite Mm -hmm. of what is good. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm moving, of course, very quickly here, but let's come to the the Christian view, and that is that God is all good and God is all powerful and there is evil. So the way that Christians approach this is that whatever evil God allows in the world, he will use for a greater good that would not be available otherwise. Mm-hmm. This is sometimes called the greater good defense, and it's right. how I approach the issue. Now, remember, it's building on a foundation of very strong arguments for a creator, designer, and moral lawgiver. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, well, why think that there's a greater good when something seemingly pointless happens or without meaning happens? And let me very much personalize this. I published a book some years ago called Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. It was published by InterVarsity. Mm-hmm. And that's the story of my first wife, Rebecca, contracting a rare form of dementia. Uh, and she's since passed away five years ago. But I had to wrestle with this. And of course, Rebecca had to very personally experience this uh, terrible evil because Rebecca was a brilliant woman. In fact, uh, right here in my desk, I have her Mensa card. Mm. Mensa's the uh, International High IQ Society. They never asked me to be in it, but uh, <laughs> but she she was you know certifiably in the genius IQ category. So mm. I asked her uh, years ago if she wanted to be in Mensa. She said, "Oh no, those people are just snobs." I said, "Well, why don't you join? You know, it kind of help your resume." She was writing books and so on. So she wrote two books. She edited books. She edited all my books. In fact, that book you have there is the last book that she was able Mm. to edit. So here she gets this terrible degenerative disease called primary progressive aphasia. Mm. And I'm a philosopher and I have taught apologetics all these years. Now, I don't think that I have to be able to explain why this happened in order for it to have meaning. So, it's one thing to say that an evil is pointless. It's another thing to say, I don't know what the point of it is. Mm. So, if I have lots of good background evidence to believe the Christian worldview, and the Christian worldview says that suffering is not wasted in God's mm. economy, in God's providence, then when I'm, going th- when I'm going through, my wife's going through this terrible form of suffering, I can basically trust the God who I know for the things I can't understand. Mm -hmm. I can trust the God who I know is there for the things that I can't understand. Now, here's where you really have to bring in, not just there is a creator and a designer, but God has revealed himself in history, Mm -hmm. in the Bible. Right. In the many different books, different genres, you have historical accounts of how God interacts with the world. And God tells us that God created the world to be good, but human beings fell into sin, Genesis 3, mm-hmm. but that God continues to pursue human beings and he hasn't given up on us. So he sends prophets, he reveals himself in nature, and ultimately he reveals himself in the incarnation, in mm-hmm. Jesus of Nazareth. And what the the story of Jesus tells us in reliable historical documents is that God is very concerned about this world that has fallen into sin, so much so that he would become one of the characters in the play that he wrote, so to speak, to uh, use mm-hmm. some of yeah. you know, C.S. Lewis's and Tolkien's yes. understanding of that. The, the author became a character. Right. And so in the person of Jesus, you see his miracles, his fulfillment of prophecy, the wisdom of his teaching, and he said that he would die in order to reconcile us to God. He would atone for our sins mm-hmm. and that he would rise again from the dead three days later. And I argue at length in the book 
that we have good and sufficient reasons to believe this, in fact, happened. Mm-hmm. So if this happened, then it's not just there is a God who could work things out. We know this from the arguments for God's existence. This is called natural theology. But this God has a name. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of names. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Right. And that is Jesus of Nazareth. So let me give you a, a brief story about Rebecca. We were on our way to go out to dinner. We went to, to um, Olive Garden quite a bit to dinner because it was a place she understood. And there was even some people there that knew she had dementia. So they would help her, like help her go to the ladies' room and so on. And I'm a firm believer that ladies belong in ladies' rooms. And <laughs> Thank <so>. you. <laughs> I'm not going to yes. go in there with her. Anyway, uh, we were on our way there and she was really struggling with her fate because she's literally losing her mind. This brilliant woman, mm-hmm. writer, editor. And I said, Becky, you know, one day this will all be in the past and we'll both be in the new heavens and the new earth and there'll be no tears and it'll all be, it'll be fine one day. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, she said, Doug, but is it really true? Now, now, Becky had always been a believer. She was very strong in her faith, but something as horrible as dementia can really shake you to the core. So I said something to her that kind of surprised me. I think the Lord prompted me to say it. I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? She said, yeah, I think you're smart. I said, do you remember that big apologetics book that I wrote called Christian Apologetics? She said, yes. I said, well, you edited every word of that book, and I assure you that what we believe is true. Mm-hmm. There are good arguments for what we believe. So in a way, I was kind of helping her believe because of the decay of her own ability to remember and to think. And to. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, yes, it is true. That's beautiful. Now that, you know, that wasn't the end of her struggles Mm-mm. or my struggles. Mm-mm. But you see, it gave us a very firm foundation because through a lot of this suffering, we didn't feel God's presence. We didn't feel God's goodness. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of anger. But we really, and I'll use it literally, you know, at the end of the day, we would we would know that God was good and God was all powerful. And this is not the end of the story. Right. You know, when I was with Becky, when she passed away, it was not the end of her story. Mm -mm. You know, she left her body, but one day she will have a resurrected body, as we are promised in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So this, to me, is very personal, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a test of the power of my Christian convictions through some very sharp, agonizing suffering. Yes. I, I, yeah, I have your book here, Walking Through Twilight. I have this one as well, beautifully mm-hmm. written. You know, I thank you for sharing that deeply personal story with us, because I think everyone who is listening right now has some kind of story somewhere in their lives. This wasn't someone quite as close to me as, as your wife certainly was to you, but my best friend from college, a very, very dear friend. Oddly enough, she she died of dementia I don't know the exact diagnosis, but she was 48, 48, left three children, not completely out of the house. And you you, you look at something like that, the deterioration of the mind like that with someone who was so wonderful and vibrant and brilliant. And, and it's it's heart wrenching. And we all see circumstances like that here. I you know, when I look at this topic uh, and particularly, I, that's what so resonated with me in the chapter you wrote about the greater good defense, you know, in the in your chapter on the problem of evil. I think that makes the most sense, both theologically, logically and personal experience, because we look in Scripture, obviously, we see it. And you you highlight this in the, in the book, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's. Great, that wonderful verse, of course, his brother sold him into slavery and he ends up being a prisoner for many years. And then he, God lifts him up and he says that iconic verse, you know, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. And the greatest example, obviously, is the one that you just told us when God entered as a central character to his own play and became Christ and the greatest evil that ever 
was perpetrated on anyone was the evil of an innocent man dying for the sins of all. And yet we see how God transitions that and uses the greatest evil to accomplish the greatest good that humanity has ever known. And so Romans 8, 28 is true. He does cause all things to work together for the good of them who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So I, I love your story. I have a personal story, too, where I look back and I think of we lost a child in utero mm. and what the Lord. It was one of those situations where we had prayed and believed. And I really felt the Lord saying that he had a daughter for us, another child. And I was in my mid 40s at the time. It seemed very unlikely. But I believed, and then we had a loss on Thanksgiving Day, no less. (laughs) And then, but the process that we went through, I really did see the good that came out of it because I really felt the Lord say, okay, persevere in faith for this, believe me for this, and insist on it in prayer. And we did. And through praying, it was close to, you know, eight months in prayer we had to spend. But the day that the child we lost, we named her Hope, the day that she was due, we found out that we were expecting Evangeline Faith. Mm. And what the Lord did through the harm, through the evil, through the suffering of the loss, I can truly look back now and see all the good that came from it in building our spiritual muscles and our prayer muscles. And But sometimes we don't always understand that, like you said. And I love how you go into the greater good defense. You talk about how certain goods we, we would never be able to realize in this life. If it weren't for the corresponding evil, we couldn't know perseverance if we didn't have an obstacle. We couldn't know faith if we didn't have doubt. We couldn't know courage if there wasn't a cause for fear. Uh, Talk to us a little more about how that works, because I think that is such a powerful argument that I think is pretty easy that we can even explain to teenagers and some younger kids that that there is a good that God accomplishes through the evil and suffering that we experience in life. Right. Yeah, I think we get a window into some of that. This is sometimes called uh, soul-making theodicy, which is a technical term. It goes back to St. Irenaeus. But it's the idea that through struggles and difficulties, we can develop character. We can develop virtue. So will we need courage if there was no difficulty or perils in life? No. Could we have perseverance if everything came to us easily? No. Faith is tested by doubt and struggle and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that these evils are instrumental to greater goods. Now, not not always. Uh, people can face dangers and be cowardly. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can face challenges and give up. So there's no automatic process here because we're moral agents mm-hmm. and we need to respond to our environment and respond to the Lord. We're, we're personal beings. We're not animals or machines or something like that. But we are given this great principle Mm -hmm. that while God is totally good, he will use the evils of human beings to bring about a greater good without sanctioning those evils. Mm -hmm. So Joseph didn't say, well, my brothers were really pretty good people. You know, they just kind of lost their way. No, what you meant for evil Mm-hmm. God meant for good that many people would be saved. So somehow in God's providence, he will take even bad intentions and make them instruments of his glory in the end. And that's not a leap of faith because we have so much in Scripture where God does that mm-hmm. repeatedly in the life of Joseph. And then, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that is in the life of Christ, the perfectly sinless, righteous Son of God is put to death as a criminal, mm-hmm. and through that, atones for our sin and is buried and rises again from the dead, ascends to heaven, and he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is our advocate, and he will one day come and make all things right. So the story is not over. We're only part way through the story. Right. If you had to just judge all of the world in terms of good and evil and stop it right now, mm-hmm. we'd say, this is awfully mixed. We're not even sure what is Mm -hmm. going to happen. But if you have reason to believe that since all the other prophecies we have in Scripture have come true, that the prophecy made by Jesus himself, that he will return and uh, judge the world Mm -hmm. and make all things right, we have reason to believe that. It's not just, uh, it's not a blind faith at all. It doesn't have to be. Right. 
I know. And that's one of the great criticisms they have of the Christian faith, that our faith is blind. It, it's kind of a blind hope that this is going to work out. But it's not based on that. It is based on a tremendous amount of evidence, not only that God exists, but his faithfulness in our life and our experience, our personal experience with him, not to say that we don't go through hardships and trials, but that is that is a tough one, though, especially when you're in the middle of it, or perhaps you don't see the fruition of the good that comes out of it. But one thing that strikes me about this that I think is so powerful is that we could not understand God's goodness, could we? If we didn't understand the corresponding depths of evil that can and does exist, could we? Well, that's true. You need to be careful with that because, you know, God was perfectly holy and good even before the angels fell. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like you need evil for God to be good. God is intrinsic. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But for us to understand for us in order for us to comprehend it. Right. We fully see the justice and the love of God in the work of Christ. And Mm -hmm. had human beings not fallen, we wouldn't see that dimension of God. Uh, But that doesn't justify evil. It means that God will use evil for the greater good and even take evil upon himself to atone for our sins by taking the punishment that we deserve, which is the most amazing, glorious Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, that could ever be imagined. And there's one element I want to add to this. I kind of mm-hmm. hinted at it, and that is, as a Christian, you can lament with God. Uh, you mm-hmm. can hurt with God, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we have about 60 Psalms of lament, mm-hmm. and some of them are pretty raw. They are. Where David says things like, I think it's Psalm 6, how long, O Lord, until you come and rescue us? Mm-hmm. And Psalm 88 is a psalm of a person who's chronically ill and is really complaining, but his name is Heman the Ezraite. And at the very end of Psalm 88, he says, Lord, darkness is my closest friend. Mm. Or some of the other translation, another translation will say, all my friends are in darkness. Either way, Mm. it's not happy, clappy stuff. You know, it's like signing off, Lord, all my friends are dead. Bye. I mean, (laughs) how'd that get in the Bible? (laughs) I'm glad it's in the Bible because it's real. Yes, it is. Heman the Ezraite suffered. And, but see, it's a prayer. Right. So lament is like hurting and even being angry with God before the face of God and crying out and trying to remember his promises. It's it's this skill of lamenting. So lamenting doesn't mean that you pretend that things are not really so bad, Mm -hmm. but you're remembering God's presence and God's promises in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And you bring all of your emotions, whether it's disappointment, fear, confusion, even anger. Mm-hmm. You bring that to the Lord. And through my struggles, I never really tried to run away from God. People will say when they're angry, they've kind of given up on God, or I I don't even want to think about God anymore. I didn't have that option because I knew too much. You know, I had lived too long and I had looked at all the other religions, all the other worldviews. I'd written about just about all of them. So I don't have any other options, you know, like, oh, gee, Buddhism seems really interesting to me now. No, I mean, (laughs) Christianity is true. Right. So I've got to live through this as Mm -hmm. a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that means sometimes being very disappointed and being very angry with God. But one thing I go to over and over again, besides the Psalms of Lament, like Psalm 90, Psalm 88, Psalm 39, is Peter, when Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And a lot of people were really bothered by that, and they they left. They didn't want to follow him anymore. And he didn't even explain what he meant. He just said to Peter, Peter, will you also leave me? And Peter says, Lord, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Mm -hmm. I don't think Peter quite understood. Not yet. (laughs) What he said. Yeah, but he realized he has to stay with Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. Exactly. Ah, oh, that's so beautifully stated. It reminds me of the, it was one of the greatest trials. Uh, we've had a few in our lives, but when we lost the little, the little one that we really had felt the Lord had promised to us, that was one of the first things I felt the Lord do was invite me into a lament with him. Mm-hmm. And we all have that invitation, I think, in, in suffering, when suffering happens or evil happens that, you know, and some people put a wall up and say, no, 
no, God, I'm going to I'm going to forget you. You you weren't faithful in this. You weren't there. You didn't answer the way I wanted you to because I thought this was the proper answer. And we all have this invitation, though. And I felt that invitation to weep with the Lord. And I was reminded of the story of Jesus with Lazarus. What's so interesting about that story? It's fascinating mm. because he's about to raise him from the dead, right? Right. And he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, but he takes the time. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He arrives on the scene. Everyone is weeping. They're in this state of anguish. And, and some of them are like, you know, remorse. Why didn't you come sooner? And Jesus takes this time to weep. It's such a curious passage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he enters into the suffering of those around him, even knowing the the redemption that is nigh that is about to come. So I felt that invitation of the Lord, and that's one that you write about so beautifully in your book, The Walking Through Twilight. So I, I think that's so on point. It's something we need to remember that anytime we go through suffering, that we do have that invitation. God is there with us, and we can walk through it with him. And like Peter said, where else are we going to go? Right. Nothing else will right. satisfy in that, and nothing mm-hmm. else is going to bring some form of redemption, obviously eternally, but often, and I think almost always, he will bring some form of redemption even in this life yeah. uh, through growth, through maturity, right. through any number of things that could happen in this life. Right. And ours ended up being the redemption of a, uh, of the child that we named Evangeline Faith, and yeah. she's perfectly healthy, and we were so blessed with that. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk to you a bit about a couple of questions. I've had some questions from young people. You know, I homeschool and I teach in a Christian co-op and I've had young people ask certain questions to me. One, well, and this one actually came from my daughter, though. She wanted to know why God couldn't create a world in which we have free will, which is what kind of led to evil coming into the world. Why couldn't he have created a paradigm where free will didn't lead to evil and suffering? How would you answer that? Well, uh, you have to consider the world as it is mm-hmm. and the world as it will become, mm-hmm. because I think uh, after the second coming in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't sin. We'll be, to use an older term, confirmed in righteousness, uh, but we'll still be human beings and we'll still have relationships, but sin will be part of our past. It won't be part of our present or part of our future. So on one level, I think we have to say, We don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's okay to say, we don't know. Mm -hmm. What I want to say is that God gets greater glory with us being responsible moral agents who sin, and then he brings about redemption Mm -hmm. and then judgment, and then the final state for the redeemed where we never sin. He gets greater glory through that than he would have if sin had never occurred at all. And actually, uh, Romans 9 teaches something like that. It's a tough passage, but... When you read Romans 9, I think you see that the righteousness of God is revealed through the fact that we sin and he brought redemption and that he will eventually bring Mm -hmm. judgment. So the fullness of his character is revealed through that whole story of uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Mm -hmm. My thoughts on that particular one, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong here, because one thing that you said, for example, on page six. 630 was God's omnipotence does not mean God can bring about contradictions since a contradiction such as a square circle is not a possible thing. And that reminded me of Chesterton, who talked about that a bit. You can he said you you can free things from alien or accidental laws, but not from the laws of their own nature. You may, if you like, free a tiger from his bars, but do not free him from his stripes. Do not go about as a demagogue encouraging triangles to break out of the prisons of their three sides. So my thoughts on free will with that is that the very nature of what free will is necessitates that an evil consequence or an evil choice can be made. And if you then you're kind of you're freeing it from the definition of what it is to be free will. You have to be free to choose to make a good choice or a bad choice. Is that a good answer for my daughter, or what do you think? I'm just curious. That's kind of what I came up with. Well, I don't know if it was right. Yeah, you see the same kind of argument yeah. in the problem of pain with C.S. Yes. Lewis. It gets a little complicated because it has to do with the nature of what human responsibility is mm-hmm. and whether it always requires the power of contrary choice. Mm-hmm. And I think God set up the world 
such that we would have the power to sin, mm-hmm. but that it was not beyond his control. It wasn't beyond his sovereignty, but that eventually we really won't have the power to sin if we are redeemed mm-hmm. in the resurrection of the just. So I think you can have a legitimate free will, moral responsibility, without having necessarily the power to sin, but that's going to be in the future. Right, that's not in this world. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be when there's no more curse, no more tears. In this world, we certainly abuse our power of choice all the time. Yes, yes, we certainly do. Um, I had this one other question I heard from a young person recently who was struggling with their faith, and I, I you know, raised in a Christian home and no longer considers themselves to be a Christian. And I thought this was an interesting question. It doesn't really negate the premise uh, that evil existing in the world is a barrier to the faith because, well, their their concept was that they would not acknowledge the existence of evil. They rather said they believed that there were right and wrong choices in life, but not necessarily good and evil choices. Nevertheless, the wrong, the the consequences of wrong choices were a barrier for their faith and believing in God. So whether they called it wrong or whether they called it evil, it was still a barrier. So how how do you kind of respond to someone who would suggest that there isn't such a thing as evil in the world? Might be a wrong choice, but not necessarily an evil choice. Because I think that the real issue there is that they think that conceding that there's evil is giving credence to the idea that there is a spiritual world, which therefore gives credence to the idea that there is a God, I I suspect, is the line of thinking there. Well, you really need, I think, the concept of an absolute good to generate the idea of evil. Right. Uh, Because when we use the word evil, we we mean a lot more than just a mistake Mm -hmm. or some kind of a faux pas or, oops, oops, I accidentally tortured and mutilated someone. (laughs) Right. Now, so the way I think to argue for the existence of evil is to use uh, what are called counterexamples. So someone says there's no such thing as evil. I'd say, well, what about someone who who rapes and murders many people like Ted Bundy, right. a serial killer? Isn't that evil? What about the Aztecs sacrificing hundreds of thousands of people in their religion? Isn't that evil? I mean, aren't there examples of evil, real evil, not just things that bother us? Mm-hmm. But things that we say, this should have never happened, and these things are under the judgment of God. I think that's the best way to talk about the reality of evil. But we have to face evil in ourselves, because the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah seventeen nine said, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who could understand it? So there's this bent in human nature to rebel against what is good, to rebel against God. So if God is infinitely holy and perfect and good, and we rebel against him, and we go the wrong way, it means we're turning against the ultimate good in the universe. And that's that's actually very bad. Mm-hmm. That's evil. So we have to not just say, well, you know, Hitler was evil, mm-hmm. or Mao Zedong was evil, or this child rapist is evil. Yes, but there's still something very wrong within us, mm-hmm. even if we don't act out right. and do something heinous like a murder or a rape. There's still something within us that is not right with God and which generates uh, what Francis Schaeffer used to call true moral guilt. Mm. And you can never accept Christ as Savior until you accept two things. You're a sinner and there is a perfect and holy God that you've sinned against. Mm. That's what the whole meaning of salvation starts to click. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before then, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because if I'm not that bad off, right. I just make a few mistakes, but I mean well, and maybe God grades on the curve, then I'm okay. But if there's a holy, holy, holy Lord, the way God, uh, Isaiah experienced God in Isaiah 6, mm-hmm. and that means I'm unholy, unholy, unholy. So there has to be a mediator now between God mm-hmm. and humans, and that's exactly who Christ is. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, First Timothy 2.5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've talked a, a good bit about the goodness of God, and then of course our the the evil that can reside within the heart of man. But I love what you brought out on page six forty of the book. You talked about the misconception of God's goodness. You said, "quote We think of God's goodness as some sort of sentimental kindness, not a blazing 
holy desire that the beloved be radically transformed to better represent its maker and redeemer. And then you went on to quote C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. I thought this was so wonderful. I love this quote where he says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves. A news plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. And then, of course, he says this famous quote, which is so, so wonderful. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So talk about this misconception we have of God's goodness and how he uses that existence of pain, I guess, to get our attention so we recognize who he is. Well, you know, as Lewis says, if we have this very attenuated view of goodness, it means no trouble, getting along with people, feeling good. You really miss out on the idea of positive righteousness Mm. or holiness. And God calls us to be holy. In fact, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that's a tall order. (laughs) So what would it take for a human being to become perfect? given the kind of setting we find ourselves in. Well, it would require redemption. You know, it would require repentance and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, and then it would be only consummated later. But one thing I love about those sections in The Problem of Pain is that Lewis says, this is the love of a very zealous lover who wants nothing but the best for the beloved. So somehow, I mean, to personalize it, God knew that through the suffering of my wife getting dementia, that this would somehow bring about something better in me and in other people. And I can see some ways where that has happened. Mm -hmm. I still have a long ways to go. I, I got remarried four years ago, and my wife's name is Kathleen. And I thought, well, you know, all that suffering I went through with Becky, I'm I'm really a patient guy now. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) guess what? I still struggle with impatience. Right. So, Uh you know, God is, even though uh, Kathleen is uh, healthy and a very different kind of person than Becky, I still struggle with impatience. So Mm -hmm. if God is holy and he wants us to be holy and we're not holy, we're sinful, then that requires the cross of Christ and that requires ongoing struggles and difficulties Mm -hmm. in the Christian life. But if you want kind of a safe, simple no problem kind of life, then don't follow Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, somewhere else, C.S. Lewis said, if I wanted a religion that would just comfort me, I'd just have a glass of wine instead. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all but one of the disciples were martyred. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it, it, we don't have this example. I, I guess we got this prosperity gospel uh, permeating our culture and the American dream is kind of corrupting the true nature of the gospel and the message that we receive. And what you said about the good that you have seen coming from the suffering you experienced with your late wife, I certainly see good that came out of our loss of, uh, you know, our child in utero. But it, the same thing, you know, and I see all of the faith that the Lord built in our lives and the how we matured in him and matured in our relationship, my husband and I. And then you think you've arrived or something and the new crisis comes. That same thing has happened with us. We've had a new crisis in, in our home. And then sometimes I'm like, where did that faith go? We had this mighty miracle. Thankfully, our holy book gives us examples of that as well with <laughs> Elijah where he he challenges all the prophets of Baal. And then what happens right after that? You know, and he has this wonderful uh, miracle where fire comes down and consumes the the bull that is offered. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, he's on the run because he's his life has been threatened. He's he's going to be killed by Jezebel. And and the next thing he knows, he's in a cave. (laughs) He's lamenting. Yeah, he says, I'm ready to die. I'm done. My ministry's over. I'm done. I'm the only one. And God's like, you're not the only one. I have all of these other prophets. What are you doing? Why are you here? And we all end up there, but the Lord is committed to refining us through, and oftentimes he refines us through suffering. And sometimes 
that suffering can be through something that is genuinely evil that exists in the world. Yeah, let me give you a, a, a statement, if I can kind of interject here, sure. that I've been wanting to say, and and that is that you can smelt meaning out of suffering. Mm. That is, you can kind of squeeze meaning out of suffering without taking away the suffering. Mm-hmm. So it really has to do with love. Mm-hmm. So when I would visit Rebecca when she was in the hospital, when she was first diagnosed with dementia, the last thing, in a, in a way, the last thing I want to do is visit my wife in the hospital. And she was in the psychiatric unit for several weeks. Nobody wants to be in the psychiatric unit. And they lock the door when you leave. Mm. So she was there for five weeks. And I would visit her. It was way across town. It was like 30 miles away. And so I would have to really prepare myself to visit her because she was just a, a shadow of her old self. She was confused. She was sad. She was on medications and so on. And nobody there wants to be there. Mm-mm. So I would I would just ask the Lord, help me to bring some some love into this situation. First, I'm going to try to minister to her, get her to eat her dinner and so on. And then I want to try to reach out to the people that are around there. So my idea was try to to find some meaning through love in this terrible situation mm-hmm. might just mean listening to somebody might be praying for someone might be just putting your hand on someone's shoulder and saying i'll pray for you and so on but that didn't heal everybody mm-hmm. it didn't make everybody happy i still left my wife in the psychiatric unit but there was meaning mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. you could smell meaning out of suffering through love mm-hmm. And that's what really got me through it. I also think of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, which is a prophecy about the Messiah, which says, The Lord has given me an instructed tongue that I might know the word that sustains the weary. An instructed tongue. And often when you go through a lot of very sharp, keen suffering, you get some empathy for people mm-hmm. and sympathy for people. I have uh, a young friend of mine who I mentored and he was my assistant for several years. And he said, I noticed something about you. Whenever you're in a room, you always size up the room to see if somebody's suffering. I didn't even know that about myself. Mm -hmm. He noticed it about me. Was that since your wife passed or was that, have you always been that way? I think it came through her suffering and struggle. Mm -hmm. She was alive at the time when he said this. Mm -hmm. And I... I'm not perfect at this and I can be, um, you know, callous and a jerk, (laughs) but I do know that um, I am pretty aware of people's struggles and suffering Mm -hmm. and I try to do something. I try to offer some word, you know, an instructed tongue and, and certainly prayer for people who are struggling and suffering. That's beautiful. I know that, that God does use each of our sufferings that we go through to help. He always opens doors for us to minister to other people while we're going through it and on the other side of it to help people walk through those dark, dark moments themselves. So I mm-hmm. I love the way you conclude the chapter. You talk about, I think this is on, I'll have to get the page number later. I think it's around page 644. Uh, but you said, Quote, Jesus bore our sins and shared our sorrows. While many evils in this world of pain are opaque and unanswerable, the greatest evil of all time has been explained to us. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to understand this because this was the greatest evil. And we do understand the meaning behind it. The greatest evil of all time was perpetrated on an innocent God and it led to the greatest good, a good that conquers evil. And truly, we cannot understand such good, such love without without understanding what the evil that was perpetrated upon him. And I love your conclusion here. You said, quote, this is actually on 645. You said, no other religion is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of its divine founder. It is in this supernatural reality that the problem of evil is best understood if the misunderstanding of his own people could not thwart him if the powers of darkness could not outsmart him or seduce him if death itself could not hold him then we have every reason to trust him as the beginning and the end 
So then we have every reason to trust him with the suffering that he allows and the evil that he allows around us, don't we? Right. And it's not just gritting your teeth and trying to summon up courage. It's remembering the reality of Jesus Christ, what he did, Mm -hmm. who he is, and that he will come again. And one day the redeemed will live in this world of what Revelation 21 and 22 speaks of, a a new heavens and the new earth, which is at the same time a city, a garden, and a temple. And there's no tears, no curse. Mm. And we will be with the Lord face to face. And that's really what makes redemption, redemption. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Uh, A number of years ago, I was interviewed about a book that came out about heaven. I think it was called Lovely Bones. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know what a, a Christian philosopher thought about heaven. And I said, well, I was talking to the reporter ahead of time. I said, I haven't read this book, so you're going to have to tell me the basic idea if I'm going to respond to it. Is that okay? And I'm planning on not reading the book. Yeah, so, probably a good you know, plan. She, from what I Yeah, she explained the book to me. Right. And I said, you know, what strikes me about this book is that this idea of heaven has nothing to do with God. Mm-hmm. God is nowhere in heaven. Mm-hmm. It's actually similar to Islam. Mm-hmm. Also, paradise for the Muslims is not being close to or being face-to-face with Allah, because Allah is always utterly other, utterly mm. transcendent. Mm. It's just you get things in paradise you don't get to have here, like wine and, and all kinds of uh, women and so on, if you're a man. But anyway, I said the biblical view of heaven, what makes it heaven is the presence of God, a God of love and truth and wisdom, and to be face-to-face and in fellowship with God. That's what makes heaven heaven. Mm. It's not a bunch of nice stuff. The nice stuff is there because he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. So, you know, it's a garden, it's a city, it's a temple, it's beautiful. There'll be other people there will be in your resurrected body that won't get dementia and cancer and and you won't have to worry about losing children and things like that. Mm, that is so good. He is the light that lights up heaven. He is the light itself. And so being in his right. presence, and that is something that is unique to our faith, that that is what heaven is. And our culture, our world has a very, very, it's a huge misunderstanding about what heaven is. It's not portrayed that way, that being in heaven is being in the presence of the one who created us and the one who more mm-hmm. who, who died for us. That is what right. it means to be in heaven. And in addition to all of that, We no longer have pain or suffering or tears. He wipes all of that away and redeems everything, and we get to live in his presence forever. Though that is what we get to look forward to uh, with the Christian faith, knowing that, like I said, you have this wonderful case built in your book. I encourage my readers to grab a copy of that and read through it. Let me get a copy of the new one, okay? Yes, I want to get a copy of that. I want to read through uh, the new stuff that you've added in. Can you see that? Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the second edition. Right. It's it's about 100 pages longer. Right. has eight new chapters. And I do have a chapter in here on lament, mm. which I put right after the chapter on the problem of evil. So I have chapter 32, the last chapter. Oh, wonderful. That- before the conclusion is called Lament as an Apologetic for Christianity. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that quite a bit today, although it was not in the first edition. Right. The- I've got to get myself a copy of that. So, Dr. Grotes, I cannot thank you enough for generously sharing your time with us today. You have a lot of demands, I know, and you get a lot of requests. We are so grateful that you took this time to help us reinforce our faith and the faith of our kids. Please let our listeners know where they can learn more about you, your writing, and your podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Actually, the biggest demand on me today was making sure my dog, who's right next to me, doesn't have a nervous breakdown about the thunder that's going on. <laughs> oh, we had a huge thunderstorm here last night. Yeah. We didn't My dog just is so afraid. Oh. You know, it's, I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but I really love dogs, and I think about God all the time, too. And I think sometimes our relationship to dogs is something like God's relationship to us, because, you know, I'm saying, Sonny, you know, it's okay. The thunder won't hurt you. And I think so often we fret over things and we worry over all these things, and God so don't worry, I've got it under control, you know. Um, but that's my next book, maybe, you know, uh, of God and dog or something like we that. We just got a puppy. My kids are so excited. We we yeah. got a puppy. Her name is Muffley, and they're, she is a doll. She is such a little, she's a little much. She looks like a little, we think she's a border collie mix, but she's a, she's been a real blessing in her home. Uh, I, I I would look forward so, to reading that book. I think that would yeah. be great. Now, yeah, I could probably I do, uh, read it, too. I, I do reflect on... Um, 
on our dog, Sonny, a bit in my book, Walking Through Twilight, mm-hmm. because God really used Sonny to bless Rebecca and myself through that journey. Wow. Uh, through his his sensitivity, how funny he was, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, if you want to know more about, about me and my ministry, I have a webpage mm-hmm. called douglasgrotheis.com. I have a podcast called Truth Tribe with Life Audio. I just recorded an episode before doing the interview here. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got about 25 episodes that are up there. Mm-hmm. And what I do is pretty straightforward. I usually just talk between uh, 20 and 25 minutes about a topic related to apologetics or culture or ethics. Mm-hmm. It's kind of low-key, just me giving a short lecture. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could find my books on Amazon. I've written, yeah. I guess, 17 books now. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm available to give lectures and seminars to your church or organization. If you go to my webpage, there's a essay there about how to build up your church through my ministry. That's awesome. I'm going to link all of that in the show notes. Thank you again for being here. Be sure to check out Truth Tribe Mom and Dads if you want to take a deep dive into defending the faith. Get yourself some master's level instruction from one of the truly great apologists of our day for free. You can't beat that. Well, that was some interview. I was so, so blessed by Dr. Grotes' mind and even more blessed by his heart and his testimony. I, but I just have to add this. After we finished recording, Dr. Grotes took some time to minister to me personally. He prayed for a really hard place of suffering in my life. You know, he really truly does notice the suffering of others. And I am so thankful for that. And did you catch the question that suffering and evil in this world should bring us to as believers? It is the same question that Peter asked. That was my biggest takeaway from our conversation with one of the greatest apologetic minds of our day. You know, many of Jesus's disciples were confused and offended by the things he was saying and doing. So they left. We, too, can find ourselves in that place when we encounter evil and suffering in this life. But Jesus asked Peter, will you go, too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That is John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. There is no other place to go when it comes to evil. There is no other place to turn in our suffering. None of the other worldviews or ideologies or religions answers those questions sufficiently. None of them minister to these needs, and none of them offer hope for redemption in this life and in the life to come. Jesus is the only one who has the words of life. Well, you know, I I hope you guys are having a great summer. Uh, you know, recently I have taken on the topics of prodigal kids, woke ideology, and the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Yeah, those are some pretty heavy topics. I don't know why I'm going heavy here in this summer, which is why in the next episode we're going to lighten it up and get really practical. We will discuss some bad habits that are causing us a lot of stress in our parenting and some good habits that we can employ to bring us peace. You know, I'm already using some of them and they are working seriously they are uh then we're going to talk about practical ways that we can disciple our family good stuff is on the horizon here at cpcw but first i'm heading to the beach to spend some quality time with my family so i'm taking a little break here i will be right back with you guys in august be sure to subscribe at katherinesegers.com to make sure that you don't miss a single episode I want to thank you for joining me today. Look, I know there are a lot of things you could be listening to right now, and I really appreciate that you took this time to spend with me. I hope you will join me for my next podcast when we take aim at some aspect of our culture that threatens to derail our parenting and steal our kids' faith. If you enjoyed this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World, would you consider telling a friend and sharing it on social media and giving it a good review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and following me on Facebook and Instagram? Oh, oh, and maybe you could 
say that Christian Parent Crazy World is the best podcast you've ever heard in your entire life. Uh, Just a thought. Uh, And be sure to check out my website, which is katherinesegers.com. That's Catherine with a C. I have lots of articles and resources there that will help you on your parenting journey. And if you subscribe, I will be sure to send you some really cool free stuff and notify you of future podcasts, articles, and blogs. I want to end this and every episode with a word of encouragement. God gave you your kids, your specific kids for a reason. That's because you hold the key to unlocking who God created them to be. We'll see you next time. Christian Parent Crazy World is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com.